It's philosophy talk. Shall we play a game? Oh, love to. Are games just a fun pastime, or is there something important about them? Hans plays with Dottie. Dottie plays with Jane. Jane plays with Willie. Willie is happy again. Games can concentrate the possibility of these moments of your own elegance. Our guest is Tina Wynn, author of Games, Agency as Art. I'm not worried about games making serial killers. I'm worried about games making Wall Street bankers. If looks could kill, they probably will. In games without frontiers, or without tears. What exactly is a game? Do you mean like fancy graphics? I get it why kids play games, but why do grown-ups? Ready to play some games? Let's do it. What's in a game? Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Game over, man! Game over! On Wednesday, May 3rd, join us at the Stanford Humanities Center for a live recording of Philosophy Talk. We'll be asking, can art save us? With Harriet Hawkins from the University of London. Could paintings help with social justice? Could movies tackle climate change? This event is free and open to the public. Everybody welcome! More information at philosophytalk.org. That's Wednesday, May 3rd at 7 p.m. at the Stanford Humanities Center. Can't wait to see you there. Are games just a waste of time? Can they equip us with important life skills? Or do games make us more antisocial? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. We're coming to you via the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ray teaches philosophy and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today we're asking, what's in a game? Oh, I love games, Ray. They are a, such a great diversion from the fate of the world. Plus, they're really important for kids. I think about all those social skills a five-year-old picks up just by playing hide-and-seek with their friends. But we're not kids. For adults like us, games are a waste of time. Grown-ups should be out doing good and building stuff, not sitting on their couch playing Nintendo. Hey, hashtag not all games, Ray. We grown-ups can learn stuff too. Oh, like what? Like how to shoot birds into pigs? Isn't that a useful skill? <laughs> but, but seriously, come on. I mean, games like that can improve your hand-to-eye coordination. Right. They increase your ability to, like, crush candy faster. Whoop-de-doo. I'm sure that's a skill that will serve you well later in life. All right, look, maybe my candy crush skills don't carry over, but my Tetris skills might. I mean, maybe they could make me better at packing my car when I go on a camping trip. Oh, please. When do you ever go camping, Josh? You're, you're kidding yourself if you think that video games are good for your physical skills. The fact is, you're sitting on your couch all day, playing virtual soccer, when you could be out on the actual field. Well, even if that were true, there are still benefits for the brain. Plenty of games teach us spatial reasoning, vocabulary, problem-solving skills. <laughs> you're just teaching yourself to be distracted. That rots your brain. I don't know. I think there are games out there that challenge you and give you real stuff to chew on. They get you to think hard about real moral issues. I think those games are good for us. Three words, Josh. Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> okay. Okay, fair enough. But I think you're being too narrow about what games are. I mean, 
most people aren't just playing alone in their room. They're out on the basketball court with their friends. They're playing Mahjong with their family. Even when they're on the computer, they're doing multiplayer role-playing games with people all over the world. <laughs> Great. So now 20 people are wasting their lives. No, they're collaborating. They're gaining important skills of cooperation, deliberation, collective action, compromise. Compromise? Have you seen what actually happens in sports? When Jeff Galuli tried to break Nancy Kerrigan's leg, that did not look like compromise. That was like Don Corleone compromising with the Tatalias. <laughs> okay, that was bad, I admit. But thankfully, that kind of thing is pretty rare. I mean, most of the time in sports like that, we learn to respect our opponents, like, like Federer and Nadal or, or Everett and Navratilova. I think that's an amazing benefit. Like, imagine thinking of your rival as a worthy foe, helping you to raise your game. Oh, okay, fine, but that's, that's just sports. Most games are a waste of time. People sitting around a table, pretending to be barbarians and wizards, slaying imaginary monsters with fake enchanted swords. On behalf of the entire Dungeons & Dragons community, I take offense at those remarks, Ray. That's, that's a game that, that involves a ton of creativity. If you're the dungeon master, it's a real workout for your imagination. Yeah, but what if they poured all that imaginative energy into actually helping the world? I, I guess they're not hurting anybody. But what they're doing is still pretty pointless. Even if that were true, would that really be so bad? The philosopher Theodore Adorno had that great line about useless activities pushing back against the tyranny of our profit-obsessed world. Let's fight the man by having fun. Well, at least our discussion is going to be fun. We've got a great guest, T. Nguyen from the University of Utah, author of Games, Agency is Art. Maybe we can ask him about the board game pandemic, which, perhaps not surprisingly, is hugely popular right now. Or we can ask about Monopoly, which has been popular since the dawn of time. We sent our rowing philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDean, on a quest to find out the origins of Monopoly and what it was originally meant to teach us. She files this report. Why don't we play Monopoly? You know something is popular when it makes it into The Simpsons. Which version? We've got Star Wars Monopoly, Rasta Monopoly, Gallipolopoly, and Necrobopoly. In this one, the family sits down to play Monopoly, a game where the goal is to force competitors into bankruptcy by buying and developing pieces of property. <laughs> That's it, baby. Welcome to Marvin Gardens. Oh, we'll see about that. One, two, three, go! Things get out of hand pretty quickly. Maggie stuffs houses in her cheeks, Bart makes hotels out of Legos, and so on. Are you little? We all know Monopoly can go on for days and end in tears. Needless to say, Monopoly does not always bring out the best in people, as shown in a trailer for a motion picture based on the game. Do not pass go! You didn't pay the luxury tax! Go to jail! Do not collect $200! I thought this was just a game! Life is a game! Let it be known that you can spend years of your life writing a book about Monopoly, but your family will still like question whether you have the rules right or not. 
Like zillions of kids, Mary Pilon grew up playing Monopoly. She was a Wall Street Journal reporter after the 2008 financial crash. And I kept thinking of the version of the Monopoly origin story that was tucked into my board game and so many others, that it was invented during you know the 1930s by this guy who was down on his luck. Pilon searched the internet, looking for more details, but she kept hitting dead ends. Instead, she learned about an economics professor named Ralph Onspach. In the 70s, he had become locked in a trademark fight for the right to sell his own game, called Anti-Monopoly. So she called him up, thinking he might know something. He immediately got back to me and was like, oh yeah, I waited 40 years for someone to ask me about this. It's, you know, that history is really complicated and it wasn't invented by a guy in the Great Depression, it was invented by this woman. And that's how Pilon learned about the real mastermind behind Monopoly. Elizabeth McGee, a game designer before women had the right to vote. She was a very outspoken advocate for women's rights. She had written poetry and short stories. Uh, she had worked as a stenographer and also had patented a kind of typewriting gadget. And McGee was obsessed with the political economist Henry George. And I won't get wildly into single tax theory here. The idea behind single tax theory is to tax land and only land, so that the burden of taxes falls on wealthy landlords. McGee taught these ideas after work, but wanted to reach more people. So she created what she called the landlord's game to communicate these ideas with the masses. You know, she's really interested in this national conversation about um, income inequality. And there's, um, when you read the newspapers at the time, there's a lot of talk of the monopolists. So you think about the railroad barons, the oil barons. In the landlord's game, when players land on a quote, absolute necessity space, like bread, coal, or shelter, players have to pay $5 into the public treasury. And this game includes two sets of rules. In one, the goal is to crush opponents. Oh boy, I'm rich! In the other, everyone is rewarded when wealth is created. You get a car! You get a car! You get a car! As gamers make their way around the board, they perform labor and earn wages, and eventually get to retire. It's meant to show a more egalitarian version of the world can exist. McGee patented the landlord's game in 1904. And it's played by this who's who of left-wing America for 30 plus years. Uh, Upton Sinclair, author of The Jungle, plays the game. Some of the early founders of the ACLU play the game. It's played at Harvard, it's played at Columbia. But the monopolistic rules were more popular, and that's the version Charles Darrow played, adopted, then sold to Parker Brothers, making a fortune during the Great Depression. It sold like wildfire at a time when people were losing their homes and banks were collapsing. You know, board games are, uh, they're cultural artifacts, but they're also theater, they're also role-playing. And so I think that Monopoly is an incredibly powerful game at that time because people could be rich, they could, you know, own property, they could do these things that maybe in real life were not necessarily um, as accessible as, as they had thought. Darrow became the first millionaire game designer in history and was credited as the inventor of Monopoly for a long time. That's how the history was told until this economist in the 1970s uh, gets, you know, basically a cease and desist. He was making a game called Anti-Monopoly. And he goes, wait a minute, how can someone have a monopoly on Monopoly? And that kicks off his 10 year long legal battle. It's largely because of this legal battle that we know this history at all. When Hasbro, the company that now sells Monopoly, released Ms. Monopoly, Jimmy Kimmel and many others ridiculed it. Women, will, they get $1,900 to start with, the men get $1,500, and women get $240 when they pass go, men only get $200 when they pass go. It just sounds like a good way to make your son hate your daughter, really. <laughs> 
When Hasbro released Ms. Monopoly, they didn't mention McGee. She had died in obscurity. One of her last jobs was with the U.S. Office of Education. She developed a reputation as an elderly typist with a lot to say about making games. These hotels are made of Legos. Bart, you're cheating. When it comes to Monopoly, the best among us often lose. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly J. McDeed. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.